What was that? (laughs) (laughs) Let me just crinkle this bag up a few more times and piss Rich off. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely definitely not making the cut. You are now listening to the RF Generation Playcast. The Playcast is the place where Single Banana and I, Ghost 81 discuss the monthly community playthrough games selected by us and played by a community of gamers on RF Generation and social media platforms like Twitter. Every episode features input from the community and maybe some guests. For episode 49, we're taking a look at an odd game from an era of cute animal platformers. In this rare developed N64 title, however, the conventions of the genre are turned on their head. Join us as we discuss the M-rated raunch fest, Conker's Bad Fur Day. You can listen to our show on Podbean and iTunes, where we always appreciate a favorable review. On Twitter, we're at RFG Playcast, Rich is at the single banana, and I am at Mr. Sean Gray. Most importantly, be sure to log on to RFGeneration.com to discuss the games with us and have a chance to get mentioned on the show. Thanks again for listening, and now on with the Playcast. <laughs> Him. He wanted 22 bucks, but I talked him down to 17. 
I took it home, washed it off, and put it back on. I was happy again, complete. People sometimes tell me I should get it permanently attached, but I don't know. Even though sometimes it's a pain in the ass, I like having a detachable penis. Check, check. All right. Ooh. Feel good. I check, sound check. good today. Look good, sound good. <laughs> Feeling great. Everything's going good. Life is amazing. So I think I want to start the show off talking a little bit about a babysitter story. As I mentioned, my wife and I have tickets to our new indoor football team, and this is our first year. And um, last night we had a game, and our guys actually won 65-3. to Nice. It's pretty awesome. They're like 4-1 and one right now. And the team they lost to in the first game, they've actually blown out since. So, uh, yeah, it's looking pretty good, man. Looking like we might make the playoffs. But the reason I tell this story is because I have this babysitter story. We're sitting there at the game, um, and my wife looks at me. And she's like, I just got a text from the babysitter, and it says, do you mind if I download Fortnite? <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Well, it was until I got the second text, which said, I don't know if you have any room on your PS4. Can I erase something? And I was uh, like, no, 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 no. Yeah, that changes everything. <laughs> that changes the game. <laughs> <laughs> but I was like, uh, well, is our youngest child at least asleep now? Like, I don't, I don't want some babysitter coming over and not watching our kids because they're addicted to Fortnite. I guess, have you seen those like YouTube videos where there's like a tornado that touched down and the kids are getting all mad because it messed up their Fortnite game? No, but that's funny, and I could see that happening. I haven't played it, but it seems to be an amazing phenomenon. I'm kind of scared to try it because I know like how much time I spent playing Call of Duty last year, mm, and I really yeah, don't want to yeah. go through that again. So I'm avoiding it, but it, it's very intriguing, like the whole situation. Yeah, there's these things that I know that are just traps that I don't want to step into. Right. Like Fortnite's one of those things. However, it is now downloaded on my PS4. I knew my PS4 had plenty of room. I mean, you know, it's a fairly new machine, so I don't know what she was talking about. But when we came in, she was playing it, and the kids were in the bed, of course. I saw her on the couch over there playing it. She's like, yeah. She said, I was going to let the kids watch it because they were interested in seeing me play it. But um, it took forever to download, of course, because it's on Wi-Fi. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> on your amazing Wi-Fi. <laughs> <laughs> Yep, so I've got the big-ass blue cord hooked up right now, so sounding great again. Yes, you are. <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> well, I wanted to talk about the concert I went to. I know I mentioned that I was going to go see um, Gillian Welch and Dave Rawlings. Wife and I checked that show out. It was super awesome. It's really cool. If you've never listened to Gillian Welch and Dave Rawlings... And you like sort of folky, sort of bluegrass stuff. I'm not a bluegrass fan, but I, I really love their stuff. Dave Rollins is an amazing guitar player, and, and Gillian is uh, an amazing songstress and uh, a great musician herself. We had such a great time at that show, and it was one of those types of shows that, you know, sometimes with the more mellow shows, I get a little tired. But with this, I mean, it had great energy the whole way through, and we just simply enjoyed it. Except, of course... <laughs> There was another etiquette issue. You got a beer thrown at you? <laughs> no, no beers this time. <laughs> but 
I tell you, man, it's like people just don't know how to act at shows. And we were joking on the Transformers episode with Kevin. And I think I sent you guys a text after this show. And I was like, man, I think you and I and Kevin just need to write a book about concert etiquette. And we started like naming all these great chapter names and stuff. Right. And, uh, yeah, it was pretty funny. But there was this girl sitting behind us. And I don't know what it is, but every time I, f- I feel like I order tickets, especially to a seated show, I'm always around the most annoying person in the place. And this girl was acting like she was the biggest fan. Do you know that concert goer? Oh, yeah. Yeah. When we saw Tegan (laughs) and Sarah, there were people in the crowd that, you know, that you would think they were literally friends with the artist, you know, like, let's have a conversation with that. Like, you know, it doesn't work that way. And, uh, I mean, this girl was acting like she was having an orgasm, like every song that played. I mean, it, it was so bad. I mean, my wife would just look at me, just roll her eyes like every time. And of course, you know, she and I are kind of just sharing this kind of giggle because this always happens to us for some reason when we go to a show. But yeah, if you're going to a show, don't call out songs. Don't act like you're the biggest fan and, you know, act appropriate. We're all there to have a good time. I get it. And I know this girl was having a good time. And I don't want to infringe on that. But, you know, she was kind of busting up my eardrum sitting in front of her. So, you know, show a little respect. I was supposed to go that same week on the Friday night to go see Bone Thugs. But uh, yeah. it got moved to September. Oh, man. <laughs> Any know. reason for that that they gave? Or? They did not give a reason. However, oh, okay. I had remembered looking at the schedule for the venue and seeing that there was a burlesque show on the same night. And, okay. you know, me, I was kind of hoping that that was the opening act, you know? Right. <laughs> <laughs> but I think they maybe like got their wires crossed about, you know, what shows were going on at that time. And maybe it was a venue problem. However, reading some reviews on Ticketmaster, I, I noted that Bone Thugs had a bit of a problem with showing up sometimes. So maybe that's it. Who knows? But again, Moved to September, and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see how things go then, and I'll, I'll give a review at that point. But uh, this Thursday, we got David Byrne coming up, so uh, I'm really, really pumped about that, and I know the wife is, too. Very cool. Can't wait to hear about that. Yeah. So what you been up to, man? Any concert news on your end, or anything you're planning to go to? Uh, I actually wasn't going to talk about this, but you're going to give me a platform to say something that I've been <laughs> wanting. <laughs> no, it's weird. I've had this... Um, I often think about like, what is my favorite song of all time? Or what are my favorite albums of all time? You know, because things float in and out of our consciousness and some things stay, some things go. I find there are albums that I can think of that I was obsessed with for like a, a year or two straight. And now I don't listen to whatsoever. Not that I don't like it, but it's just like not in the rotation anymore at all. But there's this band, the Get Up Kids. I think I've talked yep. about them before. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. So they have this album called Something to Write Home About that came out when I was in high school. And That is an album, like probably above and beyond any other album that I can think that came out when I was a kid or when I was in high school that just holds up in every single way, like production wise, lyric wise, it holds up like the lyrics aren't cringy or, you know, like, oh, what what were they thinking with those lyrics? You know, they still hold up. They're very sincere. 
the like sound of the record, the way the guitars are recorded, the the drums, keyboard, everything, like the full package of the production and then the songs themselves. It's one of those albums where if you love the album, you're not going to skip a single song. There's not one weak track on this album. I was just thinking, like, I got to tweet or put on Instagram, like, this is not just one of the best albums of, like, the emo or pop punk era, so to speak. I'm going to go out on a limb and, and say this is one of the best, like, modern rock and roll albums of all time. It, it's almost flawless in my mind. And it's still, like, the opening song, Holiday, still gives me chills. Like, every time I listen to it, it just gets me fired up. It's just an incredible, incredible album. So I bring that up because uh, my friend Corey, who I've mentioned on the show, and some coworkers mm-hmm. saw the Get Up Kids. I think it was last year. If not, it was 2016. And they were amazing, awesome. So we said, if they ever come back around, we're seeing them. We have a very short list because we don't go to that many shows because of all the beers we get thrown at us. So <laughs> we, <laughs> we are very selective in the concerts that we go to. But... Uh, Get Up Kids are coming back around, and we're seeing them at the Mohawk, which is one of our favorite venues here in the city. So that is uh, in June, and I am so hyped for that show because they were so good. But yeah, that album, Something to Write Home About, is just amazing all-time classic. Yeah, I'll have to check that out, man. I've never really listened to them, but I've heard a lot about them. If you were in high school, that means I would have been an undergrad, and that seems very familiar that they would play at the Cradle in Chapel Hill quite a bit. And uh, a lot of my friends would actually go to those shows and uh, you know talk about the Get Up Kids. So uh, I'll definitely have to give that a listen. So thanks for the recommendation. Awesome. Yeah, so also I went down another historical rabbit hole, and th- <laughs> this one kind of came out of nowhere. I don't know. I think maybe the voice of God was telling me to learn about Joan of Arc. Uh, or did you watch uh, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure or something? <laughs> no, I actually, uh, I can't remember. Is there a Joan of Arc reference in that film? She's in it, actually. Oh, yeah, sweet. Yeah. Who plays her? Do you remember? Oh, man, I can't remember. All right, man. not to put Probably you on no the spot. I'm going to have to go. And re- <laughs> I've been wanting to rewatch both of those movies, actually, for a long time. <laughs> Haven't seen them like, since I was a kid, really. But no, it was just one of those things, just like World War One. I, I just like almost randomly picked a topic thinking, I know literally nothing about this. Like my image of Joan of Arc is uh, Mila Jovovich on the cover of the Messenger DVD, you know what right. I mean? Which yeah. I haven't even seen that movie to know anything about it. So I grabbed a couple books. I read this book called The Virgin Warrior, The Life and Death of Joan of Arc. The author, Larissa Juliet Taylor, kind of proclaimed that this was one of the first, like, just a critical biography. There's no myth or lore or legend in it, and it was just a very cut and dried but not boring at all, like, just a good biography of Joan of Arc. And then I read uh, The Maid and the Queen, The Secret History of Joan of Arc. This book was by Nancy Gladstone. It's kind of the story of, of how Queen Yolande of Sicily kind of set up Joan of Arc from behind the scenes to pull the strings and make things happen. Very intriguing, very interesting book. Then I watched a couple of shows on Amazon Prime that I found. Uh, there's a series called Women Who Made History, which is a pretty cool, it was actually very high production value dramatization, but the thing is, it's a German production. So you take Joan of Arc, who is like 
one of the Frenchest people <laughs> in the history <laughs> in the history of France. You know what I mean? She's yeah. a hero of France. She's like not to say our George Washington or something like that, but you know what I mean. And then to see the whole thing is in German. It was a little weird, but still worth watching. Then I checked out Warrior Women, which was another show hosted by Lucy Lawless. And that one that one was more like historically informative and accurate. And it interviews with historians and everything. Very, very cool. Very informative. Lastly, I watched... Jeez, <laughs> <laughs> like, this is a serious rabbit hole, man. You're not kidding. <laughs> well, I read two books and watched a bunch of stuff. You know, it wasn't it wasn't too bad. I mean, you if I had Zeno read Warrior like Princess hosting, ten, book, man, so. <laughs> 10 books or something. <laughs> um, but yeah, I felt like I had to watch The Passion of Joan of Arc, which is the 1928 silent film directed by Carl Theodore Dreyer. This film, it has a very intriguing history. It was actually feared to be lost for a very long time. Then they found a print of it in an abandoned like mental hospital or something. It's really interesting to read up on. But um, the actress who plays Joan, uh, Renee Jean Falconetti, this movie is known for her performance being just one of the most amazing performances in the history of film. Yeah. And uh, to, to watch this movie silently because there's no known official soundtrack. And so it's on YouTube and I just literally watched it in silence. It really earns its reputation. Amazing, amazing movie. Would highly recommend that. I believe it's on Criterion Collection. So yes. I don't know if you have it or not, but that might be one to seek out, or I might can even find it for you. Yeah, if you find it cheap, I wouldn't mind owning it. I almost bought a copy off eBay, and I looked for it at my library, but when I saw it was on YouTube, I just couldn't wait. I watched it on there. Yeah, nothing Criterion's cheap. <laughs> right. Um, so I just want to shout out, too, I tweeted this out. I'm I'm using Goodreads to track the books that I read, uh, goodreads.com. And there's a few people that we know that are on there. Pam is on there. I'm friends with her. I can see what she reads. And it's a cool site. If any of our listeners are on it or are interested in getting on it, find me on there and we can follow each other and comment on each other's books. It's actually like one of the more useful social media platforms that I'm on. So just get on there and find me. So Cool. And I just wanted to mention, there's a PSP Joan of Arc game, right? It's supposed to be a pretty good RPG. Yeah, Jean d'Arc. That was developed by Level 5. And I really want to play that because it's very like highly regarded. And I do have a copy. So do I. Yeah, you know where I got mine? At Five Below a long time ago. I should have bought yeah. 10 copies of it. <laughs> uh, yeah, I remember it being really cheap. I remember it being under 10 bucks. Not yeah. sure what I paid for it, though, but yeah. But yeah, I have haven't played that one yet, but yeah, it's definitely on my radar now. So very cool. Well, speaking of good reads, I've gotten into a book recently. I'm not a big nonfiction guy. I mainly read fiction. I've always stayed away from nonfiction. I don't know why that is. It's just sort of a preference of mine. I think it's this idea of with fiction I can kind of escape, but when I'm reading nonfiction, it's real world stuff and it doesn't distract me as much as I want. But Recently, my wife and I watched a documentary about the Golden State Killer. It's a five-part series, and we caught, I think, two of those. And for those of you not familiar with the Golden State Killer, this was a serial rapist and a serial killer that um, started in 1976, and I believe 
He was murdering up until 1980. He stopped for a six-year period, started again in 1986, and then all of a sudden, in a few years, stopped again. And this was someone they never caught. However, as most of our listeners probably know, if you watch the news, he was recently caught. And it just kind of weirdly coincided that we happened to be watching this documentary like less than a week before they caught this guy. And I'm at work and I get this text from my wife and she's like, they just caught the Golden State Killer. And, you know, I texted back, you got to be kidding me, you know, right? Because, I mean, we just watched this. And kind of the whole purpose of the documentary was to create this sort of series to, you know, kind of get this cold case stirring up again so they could maybe get some more leads. And I sent a, a DM to my coworker because we have instant message at work. And I told her, she's like, oh, my God, you're kidding me. And I had totally forgotten that my coworker, who's about two years older than I am, grew up in Sacramento. And so she was just freaking out. You know, she was excited and kind of disheveled, you know, all at the same time as as you might imagine. I mean, for someone growing up in that area and that being like a big part of your childhood and, you know, things that your parents had to worry about. And so I got online immediately and I was like, well, let's see if maybe I can find like some like good reading material on this. And I, I came across this book. It was called I'll Be Gone in the Dark by Michelle McNamara. And I don't know if you happen to know who Michelle McNamara is, but I, I kept seeing these like allusions to the comedian Patton Oswald. And I'm like, why does he have anything to do with this book? It's so weird. And as I did a little more research into it, this was actually his wife oh, who wrote okay. this book. She was really obsessed with this case, and she started really kind of digging into it. Now, she doesn't have any sort of police background. She's not a detective. She's just someone who was always very interested in true crime. There was an event that happened to her when she was a kid in her town. There was a murder that was never solved, and so that kind of sparked her interest. Well, she got kind of obsessed with this case because it was cold, and it seemed like you know nothing was kind of being done about it, so she did a lot of research. And in the process of doing all this research, it kind of freaked her out, and she started getting on medications. And from what I understand, she took like a kind of a dangerous cocktail of medications one night, and it ultimately ended her life. And so Patton Oswald decided for her he was going to get some people together, some you know other writers and people behind the scenes historically with this case, and get them to piece her book together. And so that's what I'm reading. Oh, wow. Yeah, it, it's a really, really interesting read. This is the first book she's ever written. She's a fantastic writer, and I can't believe she's never written anything else in her life because it's a good read, but kind of knowing the context of it and then what's going on right now with the case, it's sort of enlightening because they had assumed that this guy was either in construction or in the medical field or, or military. He ended up being a police officer. And there are things in this book that you'll read and you'll come across and you'll be like, why did they not think it was a police officer? But, of course, hindsight's twenty twenty, and maybe they did pursue that avenue, you know? Right. I'm sure they did as thorough as they were in this case. But it's a really interesting book. It's very dark. It's very hard to read. It's very disturbing. I don't recommend it for the faint at heart. Uh, it's been a few nights where it's kind of kept me up a little bit reading it, but it's so fascinating and it's such a good read that, um, I'm about a third of the way through it right now and I'm just going to keep plugging and, uh, end up finishing it. But yeah, it's pretty cool, man. I, I never read nonfiction and, uh, maybe this will be the start of something for me. Nice. I'll have to, uh, put it on my list, see if my library has it. 
Yeah, I'll have to join Goodreads. Yeah, please do. And uh, put it on there. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so let's get into news a little bit. Episode 50's next, right? This is episode 49, so... Oh, I can't uh, believe it. I'll save my sentimentality for next month, but damn. <laughs> I can't believe we've done almost 50 of these at this point. Technically, we've done 50. Uh, yeah, Technically, we've done zero. probably 52, 53. Yeah. If you count zero, then we did two sidecasts. Oh, so, yeah. Uh, yeah. But logistically, this is our 50th episode, so... Reaching out one more time, guys, for some audio roasts. I've been getting a few in, had a few people tell me they're going to do them, but I'm going to create a deadline of uh, June 1st, and that way I can sort of get those things together and plug them into the podcast and, you know, try to decide where we're going to put those. So, yeah, episode 50's next. DM me on social media at The Single Banana, and I can tell you how to send that audio roast to me. Make sure it's about one to two minutes long, preferable, and, uh, yeah, just say what you want to say. I don't mind editing it up, so... It'd be fun. So looking forward to that, Sean. Should be a good time. Yeah, I can't wait. All right, man. I'm going to let you take this one. You're the one that brought <laughs> oh, it man. up for, so I'm going to let you do the next update. <laughs> well, I was telling my wife, we're following up on a story that we were really on the cutting edge of. Even at the time, I was kind of hesitant to mention it on the air. Uh, I didn't have it in the notes, and I just said, well, this is going on. The Billy Mitchell thing is what I'm alluding to. I mean, it's a long story, but it just looks like he set his Donkey Kong record on a MAME emulator. And I've watched a lot of YouTube videos on this kind of stuff. And I've realized that like when people are trying to set world records of video game scores, they do it at live events or I've seen some of these attempts that aren't at live events. And there's like these dudes will set up like five cameras around them, like One's on their hands, one's on their face, one's on the screen, one's recording the room that they're in. Billy Mitchell just, you know, if you've seen The King of Kong, he sent a VHS tape to Twin Galaxies. <laughs> and yeah, yeah. Uh, that's how he got the world record. And it's uh, outed that he, it seems like he used the MAME emulator and, and might have, you know, pieced together a, a video or it's doctored or whatever. But definitely look into it. Look into... Um, I can't remember the YouTuber's name now who, who kind of broke the story. Apollo Prime, I think is his name. But yeah, it's kind of crazy and sad and weird. And this whole scene was something that never like appealed to me. And I'm not trying to say, I told you so. I'm not trying to say it's not sour grapes or whatever shot. It's a little bit of shot in Freud, but that's not the main point. It's just like, this always seemed weird to me. Like these dudes trying to get high scores just watch the king of kong and you'll see like it's just a weird cultish kind of thing and the twin galaxies thing well twin galaxies in itself it's a really weird like kind of boys club that's yeah that's a good word for it yes that <laughs> that's kind of the thing for it. and and like you know there was like some things with like B billy mitchell's financial backing of twin galaxies played into it so there's definitely some yeah he was a judge yeah, so as well as a as a, a contributor of scores and uh, a lot of people that were record breakers were actually judges as well which i mean you know it just seems like those things never mix right. so you got all kinds of conflicts of interests the good thing is there's like there's new blood, there's young kids coming in here and just smashing all these records anyway, like in truly verifiable ways. So at some point it becomes like kind of a moot point, but 
it's just gross. Like cheating for video game scores. I know there's like there's a financial incentive to do it. You get fame. Billy Mitchell rides these things to have his hot sauce company uh, and to get paid for public appearances and and all that stuff. But you know that kind of lying and cheating. You know I wouldn't want to wake up as Billy Mitchell or try to sleep at night as him. You know what I mean? So he has some pretty sweet hair. Uh, but to go along with the update the most updated thing is that the scores were revoked twin galaxies has revoked billy mitchell's scores and so that's a big step however i don't know man i feel a little empty in that twin galaxies isn't suffering at the hands of this too i feel like they need to be made culpable for what's happened here and I feel like since they're sort of the governing body, that there's no one to sort of put any pressure on them to do something about what's going on. I don't know. If you watch King of Kong, I feel like Walter Day is an interesting kind of mild-mannered character. Mm -hmm. And then you see him hanging around people like Billy Mitchell, who are very like verbose and cocky. There's this kind of feeling like Walter Day is kind of this guy who can just be easily pushed around. Do you know what I mean? I don't know if you get that feeling, too. And I feel like with Billy Mitchell, like, handing in a VHS tape saying, oh, well, it's Billy's tape. That That's good enough. That's all we yeah. need. I feel like that's a sort of, um, on a smaller scale, a sort of a bullying tactic. You know, it's like, well, whatever Billy wants to do, you know, that's Billy Mitchell. You know, he's famous. He can do that. And, um, you know, like I said, it's just this weird boys club that I feel like should be sort of taken down. I definitely think there's a place for these records, but something needs to be done to kind of break up that group and that structure. There needs to be a second governing body where they can sort of, um, you know, cross check each other and verify things. Well, yeah, I'm going to have to confess a little bit of ignorance here, but I'm I'm sure there's other organizations out there who, you know, there's got to be other places that verify speed runs and high scores and the market will answer this, I think. You know, people will realize that Twin Galaxies, you know, they've kind of squandered their authority in this realm. So, And just for the record again, Sean did not shake that That's bastard's That's right. Hand. I knew who he was, and I walked right <laughs> past him. Just gave me just not the right vibes, man. I'm telling you. <laughs> it's funny, because I remember talking about that on air, and, you know, with, with Duke Togo, Chris, on the show, and I felt kind of weird saying it, you know, like, oh, I, I snubbed Billy Mitchell, but it's like, man, sometimes when you're right, you're right. You got to go with your gut, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Something didn't smell right, you know? <laughs> All right, so the next bit of news, I know Sean's really excited to talk about this, are these licensed remake carts from I Am 8-Bit featuring Mega Man 2 and Mega Man X. So now you can actually repurchase your favorite NES Mega Man and your favorite Super Nintendo Mega Man on a funny colored cart for 100 bucks. Your thoughts, Ugh. Sean? <laughs> <laughs> No, I mean, this is, I mean, hey, if this is what you like, go for it. It's a blue NES cartridge. You've already missed out on the red Street Fighter 2 cartridge, so just letting you know you're already buying it. Yeah, I remember hearing about that, too, and, you know, it's it's just an overpriced trinket. 
It's hard to talk about without sounding judgy. I don't want to be that way. But for that money, can't you buy the an actual copy of the game? I don't know what they go for now. I know you can buy Mega Man X for less than that. I don't know about Mega Man 2, but... Oh, definitely Mega Man 2, okay. yeah. Yeah, you can probably even buy a box copy for around the oh, There box. you go. Get the real thing. Like, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I feel the same way, too, and, and I don't want to seem highbrow about this either. It's not something I'm interested in. A lot of our friends are definitely interested in it, you know, big Mega Man right. fans, and I get it. I mean, there's stuff that I spend money on that it's like, oh, well, this is my favorite thing in the series. To me, it's no different than, like, a limited edition. You know what I mean? Like, if they put out a game and then you want the one, like, say... um the Last Guardian with that statue right. inside of you. Remember that yes. edition? I mean, if you like something that much and you want to do that, I kind of equate it the same way. I don't, I don't really see any difference in it, and I definitely don't have a problem with it. It's just not something that's for me, and it just kind of makes me chuckle sometimes to think, wow, you know, they really found a market for this, you know, reselling a game, but it is licensed. It's sort of like the NES and the SNES minis. I'm like, I have all these games. Why do I want a licensed emulator? Right. But, you know, at the same time, there are people that do, and it's cool to certain groups of people. So I'm not bashing the way anyone collects. It's just not what I do. Yeah, I agree. More power to them. And I always try to put myself in the shoes of somebody who would really want, like if it was some kind of Godzilla thing or something, you know, I'd be like going crazy for it. So I am simply not a fan of Mega Man, like in the least bit. So it's hard for me to judge it even on that level. Like I don't even like Mega Man games. So I'm looking at the cartridge now. It's a pretty like baby blue color. So Mm -hmm. there's two colors. I think there's sort of a purpley blue translucent. Okay, cool. Cool. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's cool, you know, for people that love that kind of thing. And uh, I get to bust their balls. So that's <laughs> fun, too. And I've been doing a lot of that with some of our friends on the site. So. Nice. All right. Moving on. God of War has recently been released. Thoughts on that? Is this a series that you have played a lot of in the past? Is this a game you're interested in? This is very interesting, and I'm very grateful that you threw this in the notes. I wouldn't have thought to talk about this. However... All the pre-release footage I saw of this game made me think this is an Uncharted game. This is The Last of Us. This looks like a Naughty Dog game, and I do not want to play it. I have zero interest in this game. However, the game came out, and it's got nothing but rave reviews. And yeah. I know that there's a hype cycle, and people will give it nines and tens, and then in three months, everybody's going to say, well, it, it actually sucked. It actually wasn't that good. So we got to let the hype cycle play through. But it was very interesting because I don't feel like I could have been convinced that this wasn't just the last of us with a new coat of paint. But it seems like it's not. Like, it's its own thing, and it's getting rave reviews. I mean, I don't know if I'll ever buy it or play it. Maybe somebody will lend it to me or something. Or maybe it'll come up on PlayStation Plus a few years from now, if that's still a thing. But uh, what about you? Are you intrigued by the hype, or were you looking forward to it to begin with? You know, I gotta be honest, I really haven't played any of the God of War games. I know this is big. I'm not a hack and slash guy, so it's never been a series that's really appealed to me. However, I kind of feel like with our show at some point, we should at least go back and play the first game. I think that would be kind of a cool thing to do. But I've seen the trailers and some of the gameplay from E3, which is coming up again in June. 
So we're getting close to that. If you haven't looked at RF Generation, our buddy Addicted actually posted an article about E3 and about what games he's looking forward to and possibly may be announced from all the different companies. So you should definitely check that article out. Sorry to sidetrack us there for just a minute, but as far as God of War is concerned, it looks like a neat game. It's beautiful. And I, I sort of like the father-son dynamic that's going on in this one because I have kids and you know I think that might be kind of neat. I don't know. I mean, it looks beautiful and it looks like it's going to be a really cool game. Like you, I've heard some great reviews of the game, much like, you know, when Doom came out, I didn't think it was a game that I would be interested in, but, you know, I heard all these great reviews, which, you know, prompted me to purchase it. A game like God of War, I call this a GFS game, a Gamefly sale game, oh, which, you, you know, go. I'm going to wait. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I'm starting that trend, hashtag GFS. Very cool. So, um, when that baby pops under 20 bucks, you know, maybe under 15, I'll pull the trigger on that and have me a nice copy of God of War. And you know that'll happen because they're oh, yeah. renting thousands of copies, I'm sure. So, that's a great idea. All right. Well, speaking of reviews and maybe not quite as good reviews as God of War. So I did a little collaboration with our friend uh, Zofar on the site who does this uh, thing called RF Cinema. I've talked about it before and kind of helped by announcing some of the movies that, that we were watching for it. But I actually mentioned that I was going to see Ready Player One, and he asked me if I would like to do a guest spot as RF Cinema for a month. And I thought that was an awesome offer, so I did it. And that was the last thing that I put up on the site blog. So, yeah, my wife wanted to see it. I wanted to see it, but she was really uh, hyped up on it because she really liked the book. She liked the book a lot more than I did, but I the book kind of has some sentimental value because I've talked about how I read 1Q84. I've said this a million times. It's an old story, but while I was living in New Jersey, my wife was living in Texas. We were apart, and I read 1Q84, and the book was like relevant in ways that I wasn't in expecting. But also, one thing I don't talk about a lot is that she had just read ready player one and left it behind for me to read so every night i was reading it and then we would talk on the phone about it because she had already read it so that was one of our discussion topics when we were talking on the phone from such a long distance so even though i didn't love the book it has that sentimental value for me so anyway cut ahead three years for when the movie just came out and uh yeah it was it was weird, man. Like <laughs> they completely rewrote the story and you could tell they the licenses that they could and couldn't get played such a big role and I really feel like if you're up to it, you need to see this movie more than once cuz the first time you're just looking and saying, "Oh, look, Ninja Turtles. Oh, look, Ghostbusters." Like, you know what I mean? It's very distracting. Yeah, yeah. And uh so I put up a review, but then once again, the comments were <laughs> <laughs> the comments come for the reviews, stay for the comments. And Crabmaster uh, Kelsey Crabby, his comment could have been a blog post on its own. So I highly recommend checking that out. He was very unhappy with this movie. And yeah. uh, so I went kind of light negative on it, but he just went all out like, screw this movie. <laughs> so he made me like the movie even less. Like he pointed out a lot of stuff that I agreed with him. So. My overall impression of the movie was that 
it's all flash, no substance, you know, like miles wide, but a couple inches deep kind of thing. And uh, that it will not hold up over time because the CG, some of the characters just look grotesque, like the main characters. And I am not mad about having watched it, but it just wasn't good. And also, uh, so after that, the the following RF Cinema choice from Travis was Rampage. And that review is up on the site that he wrote. And that movie was actually... I enjoyed it much more than Ready Player One because it wasn't trying to be anything other than a schlocky monster movie. And I happen to love schlocky monster movies. So once I realized that it wasn't taking itself too seriously and you got these awesome monsters just flattening the city of Chicago halfway through the movie, I was like, okay, this is this is a good time. I like it. So <laughs> <laughs> Nothing Godzilla about that at all. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean, it was pretty Godzilla-esque, and I wasn't even thinking about because my mind is so strongly compartmentalized between Asian cinema and American cinema. It's not even funny. It's like night and day. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I'm not even thinking, oh, this will be like a Godzilla movie. That actually dawned on me, like, towards the end of the movie. So It's funny, though. You're talking about Ready Player One, and then you're talking about Rampage, and Sort of, I think the difference is you go into Ready Player One on pins and needles because it's so beloved, right? It's this book that's being turned into a movie, and the book had such great success, especially among the geek video game culture people. I read it as well. I liked it. I haven't seen the movie yet because I know I'm probably going to be highly disappointed, but at the same time, I kind of want to take my kids to see it because I think it's something that they would enjoy and maybe... With them by my side, we can just kind of enjoy it together, you know? Yeah. But with Rampage, it's totally different. That is a video game that has no story whatsoever. You just (laughs) get thrown into a game, and you're just bashing buildings, eating people, fighting tanks and, uh, you know, soldiers. So there's really no expectation in going into that movie, and you kind of know what you're getting into. I mean, hell, it's got the rock in it, right? So you know you're getting into something like totally hokey. The story's going to be, like, off the chain, you know? Right. And it's going to be totally out there. And you're cool with that. You pay your money and you know what you're getting into. So, yeah, I just wanted to kind of point that out, especially with those two films. There's sort of two different things. One is, I guess, more of an original film, and one would be maybe looking for an Oscar for best screenplay, which it ain't going to get. No, that's a very good point. It was just ironic or weird or however you want to put it that so much was kind of riding on Ready Player One. I mean, it was directed by Steven Spielberg, for crying out loud. And, uh, you know, the community at large really was nonplussed by Ready Player One. And then, you know, Travis puts up his article on Rampage and I was like, dude, I completely agree with you. This movie was just (laughs) stupid fun. There were some really awesome moments in it where I was like, oh, hell yeah. Like. (laughs) (laughs) There's something to be said about stupid fun. It probably describes my entire childhood of watching movies, right? All the action films like the Schwarzenegger films, the Stallone films, all the ninja flicks and stuff that I used to watch, you know, and like you, like the Godzilla flicks I would watch, you know, on the weekend or Ultraman. There's something to be said about just seeing something that's fun and, you know, being able to appreciate fun film. Not every film has to be something serious. Right. And uh, 
as I get older, I think I was a little bit snobbier in college about the films I used to watch, you know, and I'm like, oh, have you seen Fellini's Eight and a Half? Such a good film, you know. <laughs> but as I've gotten older, I've kind of learned to really appreciate more of like what I used to see when I was younger and then just having fun watching films and probably enjoy that much more than I've ever enjoyed watching something that's uh, considered like classy or, you know, some film that everybody needs to see. So, yeah, there's that. Nice. All right, so let's talk about a new addition to our site. So if you're a follower of the front page RF Generation, you have to have seen the buzz that's going around about the RF Generation Schmuck Club that's going to be starting this June. You probably know the guy that's behind it, Metal Fro, who's been on the show a few times. So here's Josh to describe what the club's all about. Greetings, Schmuck fans. You have been recruited by RF Generation to defend the website against giant bosses and alien invasion. Prepare for blastoff. Hey there, Playcast listeners. I'm Metal Fro from RF Generation, and I'd like to invite you to join us on a new adventure starting in June. The RF Generation Schmuck Club. Similar to the Playcast, we'll be playing a single game each month, but we'll focus entirely on shoot-em-ups and related games, such as run-and-gun or on-rail shooters. On the forums, we'll have a topic for each month so we can discuss strategies, talk about the game we're playing, and share scores. Not good at shooters? No problem! The goal of this club isn't to complete games or brag about a one-credit clear, but just to play games, have good discussions about them, and just have fun! So polish that P-47 fighter plane window, don your flight suit, and let's get blasting! The first game we'll be playing for the RF Generation Shmup Club is the classic R-Type. Released in the arcade in 1987, this shoot-em-up legend has seen a release on multiple platforms. It hit nearly every microcomputer and PC format, as well as the Sega Master System, Turbo Graphics, and even the Game Boy. There's a faithful arcade conversion on the PlayStation R-Types collection, and even a revamped port on the PS3 and Xbox 360 called R-Type Dimensions with updated graphics and sound. Regardless of how you play it, you're sure to have scary fun, as the game's artwork was heavily inspired by legendary science fiction artist H.R. Geiger. Blast off and strike the evil Bido Empire with your fellow RF Generation squad members and help, and help save, save the, the galaxy! galaxy. All right, man. What do you think, Sean? You in? Hell yeah, man. That sounds awesome. I mean, I know we do this thing every month for the Playcast, but to have something like a shmup that you can just pop in and, you know, play for a little bit just to get a little bit of a break from a heavier game, sounds like a great idea, and I can't wait to jump in on that. Yeah, awesome.
and he travel with a carnival show. Ran from the car, sucked cheap cigars, and he can't get up his nose. He got into the big brown beaver, so he thought he'd take himself a peek. But the beaver was quick, then he grabbed him by the kiwis, and he ate his boy. <laughs> All right, man, let's go into some pickups. All right, well, I guess I'll jump in and go first because I don't have any. Um, <laughs> I'm really trying to downsize my collection, as you may have gotten wind, Rich. I'm always texting you stuff I want to get rid me. of. Um, <laughs> That's great. I appreciate it, though. Yeah, it kind of dawned on me, like, the last two times that we've moved, you know, least of which being from New Jersey to Texas with a third party moving company taking all of my video games, you know, to put that kind of trust. And we've all heard horror stories. Oh, yes, we but have. then just to move, uh, you know, across the city a, a couple of years ago. I mean, what a pain in the ass to move all this stuff. I had more boxes of video games than I did of any other room. Like, I had more boxes of games than I did of stuff for the kitchen. And that's just <laughs> kind of strange. And, you know, I always have these realizations that there are more games than can ever be played, even if I spent 24 hours a day playing video games. And I want to not purge everything, not give up on collecting because I've done that before and it always backfires because you always get back into it and then you get back into it even stronger. So I'm just trying to trim the fat, shrink a little bit. You know, my goal is to kind of shrink like, let's say, 30 percent in the next year or so. So I'm just taking my time trying to get rid of some stuff, get the stuff that either I think I'll never play or that I've played and I didn't like for sure I can get rid of those things right like that's pretty easy or just stuff I see like I'm sending uh our good buddy disposed hero a few things that I saw on his wants list on the site so that's a lesson for everybody get on RF generation and make a sale thread and you can put a wants list on it or if you're tracking your collection you can have a for sale and a wants list there as well. So that's a really long way of me saying I don't have any pickups. I'm more trying to get rid of stuff at the moment, sending stuff to you guys and eBaying and and everything else. But it's actually really fun and really therapeutic. And I think my shelves look better to me because they have kind of a newness to them. I'm rearranging stuff and mm -hmm. everything looks kind of fresh and... It is a way to have that kind of tactile experience that we all know and love of holding our games and looking at the packaging and cracking it open and reading the manuals. And I'm just getting a chance to do that in this way. And it's it's kind of nice. So we'll see how far this goes and where where I take it. So Yeah, it's an interesting thing you bring up because I know a lot of times when I have spare time, when I can just come up and play a game or something, let's say my wife and kids are out of town, I think I spend more time like mulling over what to play because it's so daunting, like having a large collection. Yeah. And then I'll play something and I'll be like, damn, I wish I wouldn't have played that. I wish I would have played something else. I forgot I had been wanting to play this other game for a long time. I should have spent my time doing that. So yeah, I mean, I, I totally get it. It makes sense. Um, I'm not going to go that route anytime soon, but, you know, who knows what the future holds. So uh, it's definitely a way to sort of organize and 
be able to decide what you want to play and kind of narrow it down quickly when you can keep it all like encompassed, like in, in you know, um, maybe one or two fields of vision instead of having to sort of walk around and, and look at like different collections and different things. So, so yeah, totally makes sense. As far as pickups are concerned for me, my first pickup this month is something very special. It might not be something really cool to most people that listen to the show, but I picked up a Final Fantasy VII manual. I found it on Filthy Games Room, that same Facebook page that I use quite a bit and do deals through. And they have this thing called Manual Monday. person over the, the site will say, okay, it's Manual Monday. Post any manuals that you have or manuals that you need. And so people can look at it, and if they see something that you might need, you can do a trade or something for it. So it's a fantastic idea. And I actually posted, hey, you know, I'm looking for a Final Fantasy VII manual, which should be something that's, you know, fairly common. And a guy got back with me, and, you know, I got it for a great price. And what's so special about this manual is that I still have my Final Fantasy VII game from when I was in college. Over the course of the years, for some reason... I had lost disc three and I had lost the manual. And so I could have just probably gone out, spent like 20, 25 bucks and gotten a new copy of the game. But for me, there was something about getting this manual and putting back together this game. It's Frankenstein together, but it's mostly my original game. Definitely the original case. Definitely three of the discs are still the originals. And so... There's something really cool and special about doing that. I don't know. Have you ever done that with any games of yours? Yes, but I can't think of ones that I had for a very long time that I was missing a piece of. I have found, weirdly enough, manuals of games that's like, oh, holy crap, I need that manual. And it's like, you know, some of the local stores around here sell them very Mm -hmm. cheaply because they'll have like a stand with a million of them. Uh, yeah. So happy hunting, but then you find it, you know, a manual you need for like two bucks or whatever. It's like, oh, wow, I can complete my copy of that game. That's pretty cool. For whatever reason, the doors around me do not do that. I don't know why they don't have a box, you know, just sitting on, you know, the counter with like manuals in it or some stand that you can go through them. I mean, I realize, you know, you're not going to get but like a buck or two for most manuals unless it's a rare game. But at the same time, you know, a buck or two adds up, Yeah, you know. Oh, for sure. And in one of the stores I know has boxes and boxes of them, and they just keep them stowed away or in storage. And I'm like, well, if you're not going to get them out and you're not going to match games up to them, then why not keep them out for people to dig through? I mean, that's that's sort of fun, too, to be able to dig through that sort of stuff and find it. So... Again, and I recommend it to you, if there's any manuals that you're looking for, you should check out this site, uh, Filthy Games Room on Facebook. It's a really neat community, and everybody I've met there I've had fantastic deals with. mentioned them on the show before, but uh, that's where this manual came from. And uh, Dude was really stoked that uh, it was my childhood game, too. And so, you know, when you're with other gamers, they, they definitely have that understanding. So that's not a huge score, but for me, it's really cool. I picked up a copy of Defenders of Ekron for PS4. This is a shooter game. This is a limited edition, I believe, I got from Play Asia. I grabbed a copy of South Park, The Fractured Butt Hole. <laughs> Another GFS Gamefly sale pickup. <laughs> nice. Locally, that game's still going for about 30 or $40. But, of course, with the Gamefly sale, I was able to grab a nice, nice copy for under 20 bucks. So I was happy to add that to the collection. 
Another pickup off of Filthy Games Rooms, I got a copy of Two Crude Dudes. It's a Sega Genesis game. I got it complete in box. It's a, a kind of a weird little beat-em-up on the Genesis, and I love beat-em-up games as much as I love my shmups. I try to collect them for you know any console that I'm collecting them for, and uh, it's a fun game. Also picked up a copy of Little Mermaid on Genesis, just to mention uh, my two Genesis pickups for the month. And then I went completely nuts this month picking up PS1 games. I don't know what it is, but PS1 games have really, really appealed to me as of late. And a lot of these games, you know, I'm picking up for a buck or two a piece at my local stores. And so I'm happy to grab them. But I'll go down the list real quick. I picked up a copy of Stunt Racer, which I knew was on Super Nintendo and I actually have it. Did not know it was on PS1. I grabbed a copy of Fighting Force 2, which... I don't even have a copy of Fighting Force 1, but my understanding is this is sort of the continuation of the Streets of Rage series, but in a more 3D beat-em-up fighting format. So be curious to check that out and see how it is. I picked up a copy of Mr. Driller, uh, which is a puzzle game. Cubert, Norse by Norse West. I've probably heard of the game The Lost Vikings for Genesis and for Super Nintendo. Yeah. This is the PlayStation 1, not version of that game, but, you know, um, I guess sequel or follow-up. I picked up a copy of Twisted Metal 4, which completes my Twisted Metal PS1 collection. I've got 1 through 4 now and also Small Brawl, so I was really happy to find that. That's not one that pops up a lot. Grabbed a copy of Breakout, which is uh, a reimagining of the Atari game on the PS1. I picked up a copy of Super Puzzle Fighters, Bust a Move, which, uh, of course, both puzzle games. And then I picked up a copy of a game that when I posted on social media, I got a lot of buzz about, and I had never played it, never heard of it. It just looked like a cool little tank game called Mass Destruction. Have you ever played that one? I've never even heard of that. Yeah, my neighbor who's... uh, a big arcade collector said, oh, it's a, it's a great arcade game. You know, I don't know how it is on PS1. So, uh, yeah, I haven't had a chance to pop it in yet. But definitely one that I got a lot of feedback from on social media. People saying, oh, it's a great game. And uh, it's one of those, I hesitate to say hidden gems, but it's definitely a game that you can pick up for under five bucks if you see it. So, uh, yeah, maybe pick it up or maybe check out a video on YouTube see if it's something you might like. Cool. But my biggest pickup of the month was I grabbed a new pinball machine. It's one I've been looking for for a while. Actually, a good friend of mine, a good collector in the area had it, and that is uh, 19, I believe, 1989's Elvira and the Party Monsters. So it's an Elvira-themed pinball machine, which is cool. It has like some great call-outs. I know we're talking about Conkers this month, so there's some very suggestive call-outs on this game, which are way over my kids' heads, fortunately. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's that standard sort of Elvira humor, if you've ever seen any of the movies, and uh, really, really good pinball machine, and uh, we're enjoying that quite a bit. Very cool. I want to throw in there another score that you got, which was a copy of Lady Snowblood. And I uh, appreciate oh, yes, you uh, taking my recommendation into consideration yeah. there. You're going to, you're going to love that movie when you watch it. Yeah. It's actually a double disc. So it's got one and two on it. So I'm excited about that. And uh, I know my buddy who's local, who grew up on all those ninja flicks too. I know we're going to have a, a great time popping some popcorn and watching that fun flick. Very cool, man. 
All right. Well, let's talk about what we're playing. I again, I only have one, so if you don't mind, I'll I'll just go for it. Um, oh, go for it, man. I've only got one myself. Oh, cool. Um, so yeah, it's funny you mentioned hidden gems earlier because <laughs> I wouldn't call this game a hidden gem, but I also want to throw out there that I've I've been playing a lot of Wii. I really love the Wii. It doesn't get enough love. We don't talk about it too much. We haven't played a Wii game in a while. But I play mine a lot, and I always have. So it's funny because I watch like a whole bunch of YouTube videos, underrated Wii games, Wii hidden gems, and all these things, and and not just Metal Jesus's ten hidden gem videos that he has <laughs> about the Wii. But well, many, it's a good time. The games are so cheap. Yes, too, they know? are. They are. But I think what's funny is that like. All these lists are the same, just proving my point that we talked about a couple months ago. Like, Muramasa and De Blob are not hidden gems. They're two of the most well-known games on the Wii at this point. And a lot of these yeah. YouTube videos are not old enough to say, oh, well, I was saying it back then. Like, people didn't know about Muramasa. It's like, dudes, hang it up. Find some other stuff. But uh, They remade it on Vita, dude. It's Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, but no, actually... This game, I wouldn't call it a hidden gem because it has Tom Clancy on the cover, so it's not going to be hidden for the name recognition alone. But it's the Wii version of Tom Clancy's Ghost Recon. And while not a hidden gem, it is grossly underrated, especially by the IGN review that came out at the time that just totally slammed the game. However, I just finished it today and I kept playing it because it was so good. It's a light gun game, but you're playing in third person. So it's kind of like a third person shooter, but you're pointing with the Wiimote to shoot like a light gun game and it's mm. co-op. So there are two characters on the screen and you move them from cover point to cover point. So once you move from like behind a car to next to a wall by pressing a button prompt, then a whole bunch of guys come out that you have to shoot. And you can't advance until you shoot everybody. You know what I mean? So yeah, then yeah. you would move on to the next point. So you're not free moving. You have to move from point to point when you clear the area. It was such a fun game. And you get different weapons. And it's such a good blend of the third-person shooting, but then also light gun mechanics. Like, there's no ammo limit. You just reload by shooting off the screen and you get rocket launchers and grenades and you're just fighting these russian terrorists the whole time it's all very <laughs> campy and corny but man i love this game and it was one of those situations much like our game of the month that we're about to talk about that i said uh i think i'm gonna get rid of this game out of my collection i need to check it out first though yeah. just to make sure and then i played it and it was like holy crap this game is awesome <laughs> <laughs> so I got to highly recommend the Wii version of Ghost Recon to anybody who likes light gun games on the Wii or in general, and also anybody who likes two-player co-op games, because there's really a lot of cool scenarios. There's a whole bunch of stealth missions where there'll be like three guys on the screen and one player has to shoot one and the other player has to shoot the other. And then you have to like converge on the third guy. Like you have to form a strategy. And actually, the friendly AI for doing that is pretty good because, like, if there's two guys on the screen and you have to kill them, the AI-friendly player will have his reticle on one of the guys. But then if you put your reticle over the same guy, he switches to the other guy, like, targets a different target. The friendly AI is fairly intelligent. Cool game. Very, very cool game. 
Again, grossly underrated. This game has like a 60 on Metacritic. I would say it's probably a 75 at least. I had so much fun with it. Neat, man. So. All right. Well, I'll tell you what I've been playing, and it's not what I would call a hidden gem, but it's probably a game that doesn't get a lot of attention, especially for the theme of it. It's a Dig Dug Digging Strike on the DS. Uh, hmm. I've wanted to have a DS game, you know, sort of by my side, you know, when I get into bed at night, just to have something to play. And um, Dig Dug's a game I always enjoyed playing in the arcade, and I had read some reviews about Dig Dug Digging Strike as being one of the DS games that people recommend as being a good game. So, you know, I thought I would check it out and purchase it. It's got that same Dig Dug feel, and what I like about it is the way that they use the DS the top screen and the bottom screen there is an overworld which you know you're on top of a map and there's like these big giant like kind of godzilla monsters and stuff that are on that upper map and then the lower part is a subterranean map so what you'll do is you'll walk around on the outworld map on the top and you'll go down into like a hole and then once you go down into that hole you become part of the subterranean map which is you know your typical dig dug fair where you're digging however there are these things like these posts and stuff that you can kind of dig under. And if the post or the, the sort of like spike goes all the way to the ground, it cracks the surface up on the upper world. And what you try to do is destroy these monsters on the upper part by doing that. So it adds a little bit of flair to the game. There's also like more power-ups and things like that to keep the game fresh and interesting from the original Dig Dug series. And there's also like a really cool story mode that goes along with the game that's very interesting, I, I guess. And I didn't know this, but Dig Dug and Mr. Driller, apparently, I think Mr. Driller is Dig Dug's son oh, or something like that. I didn't I, know I, I had that. no idea. I did, I did not know the Dig <laughs> Dug mythology. Now I do. Very cool. And so all the people in the land that they're from, I just can't recall the name right now, but they all love Mr. Driller and Dig Dug has sort of been put over to the side. You know, he's, you know, he he can't do anything anymore. You know, we need Mr. Driller to help us out. And so this is sort of a story of him redeeming himself and, you know, saving the, uh, the world where he's from. And so it's a really, really neat concept combined with some, you know, really fun gameplay, especially if you're an old school Dig Dug fan like myself. So yeah, check it out. Dig Dug Digging Strike. That sounds awesome, actually. And the way you were describing it, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like a blend of the mechanics of Dig Dug 1 with Dig Dug 2. Yes. Yeah. And Dig Dug 2 happens to be, at least the NES version of Dig Dug 2 is actually one of my favorite games of all time. I love that game. So this is You got to get this then. Yeah, this is very compelling. <laughs> I'll let you know if I see it out. It's, um, you know, usually less than 20 bucks. I know, you know, complete. So um, I think you could probably still snag it for under 10. So worth a pickup, especially for someone like you who enjoyed Dig Dug 2. Cool. Chug a look, chug a look. Make you want to holler, holler, Tommy, don't you know? Chug a look, chug a look. Grape wine in a mason jar, homemade and brought to school by a friend of mine after class. Me 
and him and this other fool decide that we'll drink up what's left. So the look so we helped ourselves. First time for everything, mmm, my ears still rang. Chug a lug, chug a lug. Make you wanna holler, holler, ho. Burns your tummy, don't you know? Chug a lug, chug a lug, 4H and a FFA. On a field trip to the farm, me and a friend sneak off behind. This big old barn where we uncovered a covered up moonshine still. And we thought we'd drink our fill And I swallowed it with a smile <laughs> I run ten miles Chug-a-lug, chug-a-lug Make you wanna holler Hide the Burns your tummy, don't you know Chug-a-lug, chug-a-lug Jukebox and sawdust floor Something like I ain't never seen All right, so in April we played the N64 cult classic Conker's Bad Fur Day. And joining us our playthrough was our good friends from RF Generation, Beauchamp, Wimpster, of course, Dougley007, an old member but new to our playthroughs, Link41, who we'll be hearing some comments from later, Oatbob, FNA, love that name, and our good friend Pam. Alright, so a little about Conkers. It's basically a puzzle platformer, which was developed by Rare, who did Donkey Kong 64 and the Banjo and Kazooie series. It was made for the N64 and released in 2001. The game features adult content such as alcohol, tobacco use, profanity, vulgar humor, and lots of pop cultural references, which I'm sure we'll talk about later. It was originally intended to be for a family audience, but it was ultimately scrapped due to similarities with other popular platformers at the time. It had low sales, but it has developed a cult following over the years. It was re-released as Conquer Live and Reloaded for the Xbox in 2005, and a more updated version can be found on the Rare Replay compilation for the Xbox One, which was released in 2015. In Conkers, you play as Conker. He's a drunken and foul-mouthed squirrel who gets loaded at a bar one night and passes out in the forest. The story just sort of revolves about him trying to get back to his girlfriend, a squirrel named Barry. Along the way, the Panther King attempts to capture him and turn Conker into a table leg. True, guys, I can't make this up if I wanted to. (laughs) And there are these different stories within the overall narrative that are kind of pieced together to form this game as a whole. So it's a very simple story and a very interesting concept. And Sean, I'm going to kick it over to you and let you talk about the game and what your thoughts were about the story. I just want to clarify one thing that you said, which was not incorrect. I just want to add sure. to it that the Rare Replay version of the game is just an up version of the N64 game. Like I said, you didn't say anything wrong there, but you went from Live and Reloaded into Rare Replay, and I don't want people to be confused because I actually don't know why they didn't just put Live and Reloaded on Rare Replay. It's a technologically superior version of the game from what I understand, but... yeah. They just went with the N64 version, so just wanted to clarify that. But as far as the 
story of the game, you're right. It's silly that <laughs> the, this evil king guy needs needs a red squirrel to be the leg for his table because he keeps spilling his milk. <laughs> so it's a very silly thing, but it serves as a vehicle to kind of throw conquer into these adventures, which we'll definitely talk about. But the story overall... I don't know how I feel about it. There's a lot of, you know, references to other media and pop culture, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. like classic war movies and The Matrix and all kinds of other stuff. And then the ending when we'll get to it is is very intriguing. So, <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, I didn't dislike the story for sure. Very just silly and uh, different. <laughs> Yeah, it sort of fits with the game, I think, you know, and and being so, like, goofy and silly and having very little substance. I'm not saying the game has little substance, but it's just kind of goofy and silly. And so having, you know, an overall story that's goofy and silly kind of fit the dialogue, you know, in the game, which I, I know we'll definitely talk about. You did mention something just now about... Conquer on the N64 and Conquer Live and Reloaded, you'd sent me a link to a really interesting YouTube video about the differences and this sort of series that this guy does. Do you want to explain that a little bit? Yeah, I'd love to because I'm going to be honest with you. I watched this video again yesterday and it is so in-depth that I'm not going to say I'm going to purposely parrot what he says, but I'm going to bring a lot of it into the conversation because it was very he he's very insightful and the person it's an hour long actually. Yeah, so, no, yeah, he, go, he goes insightful. hard. He he goes really deep into these games and uh, the YouTuber is Exo Paradigm Gamer and he has a series called Remake or Rebreak. And he basically will take a game that has been remade and judge the original and the remake and it's a deeper view of both versions of the game and then a comparison of, you know, is this new version a definitive version is, or is it a rebreak, which is his rating for it's worse than the original version, like not even as good. Great high quality content on that guy's channel, XO Paradigm Gamer. So, yeah, were you able to check that out? Absolutely. Okay, yeah, cool, I, cool. I watched the whole thing. It was really good and very interesting. And, you know, had I seen this video a long time ago, I would have never sold my copy of Conker's Live and Reloaded. Yeah. <laughs> because, uh, yeah, I actually played it on the, um, the N64, which I think that's the platform you played it on, too, because you have a cart. Well, yeah, I mean, and that's kind of a long story, too. I don't know if you want me to get into it, but... Well, I feel like I should put it out there. I didn't get far into this game before I bailed on it. and um, yeah. But one of the things that happened was I mentioned that I got one of those Retro Fighters new fangled controllers for the N64. Yep. But I got to tell you, there's something up with this tube TV that I have. And I played Vandal Hearts on it. So I spent a lot of time with it. And I also played Secret of Mana back last year on this TV. And there's one splotch of bad color on the TV as if there was like a magnet next to it. You know how when that happens. Yeah. But the the TV, the screen is just fading and fading and fading. And when you're playing an N64 game of all things, I couldn't see a damn thing on the screen. So, (laughs) So I played the original version for about an hour and then bailed on that and then tried to play it emulated 
you know, that was actually fine. And I, I only stopped playing the game because I wasn't enjoying it in any way, shape mm-hmm. or form. So I had the cart, but the reason we're even playing this game is kind of funny. And I should mention, I texted yes, you. you <laughs> <laughs> so I texted you, do you have any interest in Conker's Bad Fur Day? And what I meant was, do you need it like to buy it from me? Because I'm going to get rid of it. And you said, let's play that for April. And I was like, oh, no, like, that's not what I meant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a true story. And and I think we've had some people on the site who had mentioned maybe playing the game one month. So there was some interest in it. And when we did announce the game, we had a lot of interest and actually had some good participation this month, too. So, yeah, I'm glad we played it, you know, and, and now if you so choose to sell the game, you can do so. Oh, it's gone. It's long gone. <laughs> Funny story, too. I sold it to a really finicky buyer, so I can tell this story. I actually know where I bought the game, because I'm the original owner. I bought this game at the Toys R Us in Times Square in New York City when I was there on a trip, and it was like on clearance. I bought it brand new, and I've had the cartridge ever since then. It was in perfect condition, and this guy, like I said, he was very finicky. He might be suspect of how good condition the game is in when he gets it because uh, it's so pristine. But he's like, I'm going to open it when I receive it. And I was like, dude, go for it. It's freaking legit, bro. Don't worry about it. Like, <laughs> now, this was card only, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. How old were you when you bought it? I know it's a NC-17 game, so yeah, uh, do you remember? I was old enough. I, it was in the early 2000s. Okay, yeah. So. All right. Yeah, I was old enough to buy it, but we'll get into that aspect of it as well. Um, so yeah, I had kind of an interesting initial experience even trying to play this game. But I will say I, I enjoy that Retro Fighters controller, but now I'm concerned that this is going to be like very controversial to say, but just take it with a grain of salt, everybody, please. But like playing N64 games on an N64 is really like not the best way to play N64 games, you know, unless you like mm. the low res graphics, the fog, the blurry textures, you know, playing a up res HD emulated version of a game with a better controller is usually the better option. So I'm at like kind of a crossroads with even owning Nintendo 64 games you know selling conquer kind of broke the ice for that but we'll see where that goes i probably have about 15 in 64 games if that yeah i know you're not a fan so it's my least favorite system and this did not do anything to uh, change my mind i will say that right not a fan of the system at all and i understand like probably a lot of my dislike for the system is all the hype around it Every time you walk into a damn video game store, people are just talking about how it's the best thing ever, you know. And I think that has a lot to do with the age of these people and the nostalgia from it and these people entering the job market and having expendable income now. And so this is the hot thing, right? Yeah. And so that's happened with every system. You know, we can say that about, you know, the Super Nintendo and even the Nintendo. And I was probably one of those annoying people back then talking about how the Nintendo was so great. So, you know, I can't begrudge people too much about it. But for me, I hate the controller. I think the graphics are awful. I was a PlayStation guy when I was in college. I bypassed the N64. So glad I did. I don't know. I I just thought Sony did it so much better during that era. So, 
Yeah, it's just me, and I know people are going to disagree with that, but that's okay. Yeah, no, I, I actually do agree. I had a PlayStation 1 as well growing up, and my Nintendo 64, the one I have now that I still have, was actually given to me by a friend of mine when I was like... 25 or something i didn't care about video games at all and he was just like oh you want this n64 and a couple of games and i took it at the time i thought oh that's neat i've never had one of these but as it turns out over time i've amassed like a really good collection and i have all of the good games for this system so that's another reason that i'm like hesitant to start selling it off but um do you remember uh Hollywood Video had a game store inside it called Game Crazy. I do not remember that. Uh, Okay, so I've actually heard other people talking about this, but when they went out of business, they liquidated their games so cheaply that I was able to buy like every good N64 game at the time for like pennies on the dollar. And that's, that's where a good chunk of my N64 collection came from. So cool. Yeah. Anyway, wow, we're, we're really diverging yeah, we derailed we just went into hate mode there yeah. and got away from conkers all right <laughs> <laughs> but let's get into the gameplay a little bit on conkers as i mentioned before it's a puzzle platformer there's a strange goal in this game and i thought it very odd at first and didn't really realize that it was the goal of the game but what you're going around doing is collecting cash you might get that from beating a boss or completing a fetch quest or something like that And so that helps you get past other areas. And the reason this is kind of neat, I didn't understand it at first, but this is a somewhat non-linear game. There's basically a land that sort of acts as a central hub, and at one point you have an option to go one way or another, which kind of created problems for me in doing the checkpoints. I didn't really know that when I was doing the checkpoints because what I typically do is before playing the game, I'll go on YouTube, I'll find like a walkthrough or something like that, and I'll add all the times up, and then I'll divide it into four and figure out in the video what's going on at that point to try to break up the gameplay for our members at RF Generation. And so with this game being somewhat non-linear, Someone probably put way too much time into getting to one checkpoint or got to maybe the third checkpoint before they got to the second checkpoint. I don't know. We really never talked about that on the site. But the point is, I think this is really kind of a cool concept and it gives some autonomy to the player. And um, I thought that was a great idea and I thought it was something the game did well. It's funny you bring up the money mechanic because that was one of the first things that I thought was like, (laughs) like weirdly distasteful, the animation where the, (laughs) the dollar signs go in his eyes and, uh, that OJ's song plays, uh, for the love of money, (laughs) which is for those who don't know the song, money, 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 great song, but it's like, what a weird, strange thing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and to, just to have wads of cash calling you a bastard. Right. I mean, <laughs> and everything it's is funny. animate. You know, everything is a is a character. So yeah, the money. Come over here. You know, like, <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm over here, yeah. you bastard. Yeah. <laughs> it's one of those things that, like I said, it was really odd to me at first, but then I, I kind of fell in love with it. I, I thought it was just a great idea. Having to collect cash and just to access certain areas, I thought. 
that was a great idea, except some of it is fairly well hidden. And I think one of our members, Dougley007, is like, I don't have enough cash to get past this one point, and I don't know what I need to do. I mean, I know Doug, he's going to finish the game, but... You know, for a monthly playthrough, that kind of can become problematic. And I definitely consulted a little bit of a walkthrough as far as finding the cash. I managed to find, I think, all of it. So uh, it's neat. It's a cool mechanic. Again, it can make you backtrack and it can maybe throw you off in some spots. Because like I said, a lot of it, like you beat a boss and you automatically get it. But other times it's sort of hidden in the game. And that can be problematic and frustrating if you're trying to advance. And then I wanted to talk a little about the platforming mechanics. You've got jumping, you've got high jumping, you've got this thing where you can kind of spin your tail hovering. Mm. You can swim, and at one point you get this ability to go underwater and dive. And then you also have an attack button, which you use somewhat sparingly. You don't use it that much. And these are all sort of things that you can do with, I believe it's the A button in the game in combination sometimes with other buttons to do the high jump. I think you have to hold down the trigger button in the game. So, um, yeah, man, uh, what did you think about the platforming in this game? It wasn't too bad. I There were some complaints on the board. I think Pam said, if I miss one more jump, I'm going to throw my controller through the screen. And I definitely felt some of that in the beginning. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I did like the high jump that you get. Like you were saying, you you hold Z and then jump. I think it's Z or R and then or L. I, I don't remember. <laughs> I think it's Z okay. or X or something like that. It's underneath the control. It's a trigger button. Keep in yeah. mind, I used a third party controller and then I used a handheld device to play this game. So I don't <laughs> even know what buttons I was pressing. But uh, yeah, I thought the platforming you know, it was okay, and I can see people's frustrations with it. Let me just say that. Yeah, it's early 3D platforming, so there is going to be some frustrations, especially if it's something you're not used to. PlayStation had quite a bit of 3D platforming games, and uh, one of my favorite games on that system is Medieval. Uh, You know, it's different. It's not quite the same platforming that Medieval had. Medieval, I thought... Did a little bit better, although even in Medieval, there's some very, very frustrating parts in that game. So um, I had a lot of problems at first with it. I kept falling off the waterfall in the beginning of the game. And then once I figured it out and got a little deeper into the game, I got more accustomed to it. And it was better for me as I moved throughout I've really never played much Mario 64, which I hear is the best platforming game on the system as far as that's concerned. And that the Banjo and Kazooie games are really good too, which were also done by Rare. But, um, but yeah, I didn't have a whole lot of problem with the platforming, but I did feel like in times it could be aggravating. I felt like with the high jumping, I didn't use it enough and sometimes would forget I had it. And then I would get to a part of the game where I needed to use it and I just totally spaced out for maybe like 30 minutes or so about like, (laughs) how in the hell am I going to get up on this platform? And then, you know, it would all of a sudden like come to me. It's like, oh my gosh, all I have to do is do the high jump technique. So, you know, when you use mechanics, I feel like you need to be like kind of consistent with it. And I didn't feel like this game was very consistent with the different mechanics and broke your rhythm and would kind of make you forget about those sort of things. So what's funny is my kids saw me playing it and I did let them watch me play some of the game, except when I would get to like, you know, someone who would be using dialogue, right. I'd make them leave <laughs> because that's where you're unsafe. Yeah. Um, but, um, 
my son's fun. He's like, what are you playing, Dad? Is that Sonic? He's like, that looks like Tails. Oh, and yeah. I was like, you're totally right, man. That's like the same thing. Yeah. And not that he's really played many Sonic games, but he's watched a lot of the cartoons. So he knows like that whole propeller tail thing is uh, from that show. But uh, some of the things that were annoying, and I think some of the things they pointed out in the video you discussed were like when you would fall down and the propeller tail would only last for a certain amount of time. And so a lot of times you would lose life if you would fall from too far and it was hard to judge how far was too far right. to fall. And then there are other times where you would climb up like a tall tower or something and you couldn't adjust the camera to see below you. And you just had to make these crazy like leaps of faith and hope that you would hit something without losing too much life on the way down or fall a little bit, try to use your tail. And so that would sort of brace your fall that you wouldn't be falling from a greater height. Because if you fell too far, you could lose all your life. So uh, a little bit of frustration in that point of the game, but uh, overall not too bad. Let's talk about the B button mechanic in the game. That was the part where you would see like a large, like round B on the ground. And that was sort of your cue for doing some action. So you want to start talking about that a little bit? The tutorial about it is funny because it explains what a contextual button press is. That part was pretty funny. And uh, the drunken scarecrow. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So, because I'm a fan of contextual button presses, that really got to my heartstrings. But uh, this is where you do some of the first-person shooting, so to speak, and Mm -hmm. a lot of other kind of actions. And, I mean, you have the slingshot, you have some guns, knife throwing, and all kinds of other stuff that it kind of goes into an over-the-shoulder, if not first-person perspective where you kind of aim around the screen and shoot stuff, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Or hypnotize a dinosaur. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I thought it was a pretty cool mechanic, a neat little integration into the game. I will say that with the slingshots and stuff, with there being basically no crosshairs or anything like that, right. for some of the weapons in the game, that was very, very annoying. That became very problematic in a few of the stages, so I'm sure anyone who's played this game can definitely sympathize with the way I feel about that. But yeah, neat mechanic, and uh, you know, I thought it was just okay as far as putting that into the game. I did want to talk a little bit about the variation in the gameplay. As we mentioned, this is a puzzle platformer, so you're basically jumping around, you're trying to figure out these different puzzles and how to advance into the next board, but there's also these other boards that are kind of tossed into the game to give it some variation, Uh, one of those being the lava racing scene. There's this bat scene. There's a lot of gunner scenes where you're having to walk around. It becomes like a third-person shooter. These things are just kind of tossed in, and uh, I'll just kind of say, you know, when I think about it, especially with the racing scene, I mean, this isn't a racing game, and to kind of be thrown into a racing scene was very jarring for me and it took me a long time to beat that racing level. If I'm playing a game that's primarily a platformer and then I get thrown into some different scenario like a racing scene, I kind of feel like that should be somewhat on the easier side. Do you know what I mean? So that you can get through it. I mean, I think it should be cool, but I don't think it should be so different and so difficult that 
you get frustrated and can't advance. You know, you you want to yeah. play a certain game. I mean, I'm not going to compare it to like Battle. Oh, I was I was just waiting. And I was I was going to say, have you ever played Battletoads? Like, <laughs> yes, I have. Okay. And I'm not going to compare it to that. <laughs> but uh, there's still some frustrating stuff in it. It wouldn't be so bad if the um, board didn't change up and those damn big walking dinosaurs are just horrible on that stage. And uh, I think some other people on our threads mentioned some frustration with that scene as well. Can I just throw in here that the speeder bike level in Battletoads, which is also a rare, rareware <laughs> game, which is why we brought it up, is my like only claim to fame as a gamer. Like you can beat Mike Tyson and you can beat Contra without dying. I can do the speeder bike level in Battletoads like the first time every time. It's like built wow. into my muscle memory. So, yeah, I can't beat the game. I can't get past the snake level, but I can beat the speeder bike level no problem. So, Wow, that's impressive. Yeah, man. that's my only that's like my only thing that I can do <laughs> in video gaming. <laughs> that's like hard for people. <laughs> but yeah, rare they seem to like to throw these <laughs> kind of just hard racing sections into their platform games, it seems. It's a tradition, so I didn't quite get to that part, but I saw in a bunch of reviews saying how like kind of frustratingly, not out of place it was, but just how much of a break of the flow of the game that it was in the way that you're talking about. So, Yeah, no, it's not out of place at all, like you said. Um, it definitely fits into the context of the game, and it, it's neat. And I you know, wouldn't want to take it out of the game, but there are a few things in there that could be changed to simplify it quite a bit. And I think they actually did. One of the videos that the video you mentioned that you and I watched, I think on Conker's Live and Reloaded, they made it a little easier to get past the dinosaurs. It's just a one-hit death yeah. if you hit one of those dinosaurs. So, uh, yeah, they did some uh, rearranging and uh, you know making the game better as far as that was concerned. No, man, they nerfed it. They made it easier for noobs. <laughs> <laughs> One scene in particular that I did want to mention is the bat scene. And this is um, basically the takeoff on uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula that's in the game where you're turned into this little bat and you have to poop on these villagers and then grab them by their legs and pick them up and drag them over to uh, like a meat grinder yeah. and drop them into it. My issue with this, I like the variation. I like when games, you know, switch things up a bit and make it interesting. And this was kind of neat. But at the same time, what I didn't like is you don't get any type of tutorial about the controls and how things are supposed to work in this game. And so the biggest part for me was having to figure this stuff out, figuring out how to fly, figuring out, as oddly as it sounds, how to poop, <laughs> and then trying to figure out how do I pick these villagers up and how do I fly with them? And uh, it was very, very complex. And I wish that, you know, the game would just sort of pause a little bit and give you some sort of tutorial about what you're doing. I think that could have made it a lot better. Again, you know, when you have to teach yourself these kind of things, it really, really breaks up the flow of the game. And I do think that that was a problem. But I'll transition into one thing that I really, really liked about the game, and that was the save states. I know maybe you weren't a big fan of this game, but you had to like those. So, yeah, I found that the auto-saving was kind of ahead of its time, I guess. It was the checkpointing was very tight and uh, 
you know, to have a game like that back then, especially to not have to worry about that kind of stuff or worried about getting an ink ribbon, let alone finding a save spot, you know, the, uh, to just have it checkpointing you and uh, auto saving is a real quality of life thing for a game, especially this old. Yeah, man, I totally agree. I really like this aspect of the game. Probably what I thought was one of its best features because even in some of the boss fights, it would kind of save up to a certain point. You never felt like you had to backtrack a whole lot in this game. A lot of the areas would be broken up into several different parts, especially like the war scene, the war with the teddy bears, you know, kind of the Saving Private Ryan scene. It was a huge scene, but it was broken up into many, many chunks. And so when you would get past some area that might be a little bit difficult, it would autosave for you and you could just keep playing. There are lives in this game and you can die, but you can continue from that save point even if you die. So... In this game, you can collect extra lives that are in the form of tails, but you basically get infinite lives in this game. So I don't really see how those fit in unless you want to try to beat the game without getting a game over. But I felt like there really wasn't any reason for any extra lives in this game. But again, like you said, you know, for a game this early, I thought they did a fantastic job of that. And it limited some of the frustration that I had from, you know, some of the levels and some of the platforming. Um, I feel like we've been dancing around this a bit, and this is something you can't dance around in the game, is the humor of the game. Right. Um, <laughs> I've got on our outline humor slash vulgarity, <laughs> which, you know, it, it goes hand in hand in this game. And uh, I just wanted to, uh, you know, maybe touch on some specific areas and some specific scenes and, uh, you know, kind of get your take or some things that kind of stood out to you or, you know, what you thought overall about the use of it in this game. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, unfortunately, a lot of the mechanics of the game and actually playing the game, I can talk about the <laughs> the script, you know, and the use of, let's say, foul language and suggestive themes. And I didn't love it, but I'm the kind of person that it's really really almost impossible to offend me i i really believe that like nothing is sacred and i just mm -hmm. think you know lowbrow humor is lowbrow humor and you can judge it as such and it's not my favorite thing and i i would have been into it when i was younger for sure you know around let's say 12, 13 years old, I would have found this game hilarious. Like, <laughs> Dude, you're like taking the words right out of my mouth right now. I mean, that that's exactly what I was going to say. 12-year-old me would have thought everything was so hilarious about this game. Yeah, so I mean, there's a lot of poop jokes and foul language. They censor the F word, but they say pretty much everything else in the N64 version, at least. They do a little bit more censorship from what I understand in the uh, Xbox version, but the general message is still there, even if you bleep out one word and not another. Yeah. So, like, I don't know how else to put it. It is at that, like, kind of middle school <laughs> level of humor <laughs> that, like, oh, we're cursing and using poop and sex jokes. You know, that's fine. It's it's just very lowbrow, you know? Yeah. It's middle school humor, but at the same time, it's NC-17, so you have to be 17 to actually play the game. Right. But, you know, 
I'm the kind of person, like, with my kids, with my wife, I mean, we're big fans of potty humor. We crack up. The least thing, you know, when it, when you have kids, especially young kids, it's just so funny, you know, right. with the, you know, the fart jokes and stuff like that, or, you know, the fact that I'm fighting a big pile of poop with corn for teeth and I'm throwing toilet paper into its mouth and it's singing opera at me. I mean, <laughs> I find that stuff hilarious. I love that part of the game. And, uh, so much of this game was well done as far as potty humor is concerned. I thought it was fantastic. The foul language, the cursing and the, and the beeping of the language. I mean, I knew what I was getting into in playing this game. So oh, yeah. that stuff's fine. It didn't bother me. I know this, this is an adult game and I'm totally cool with that. And I respect the developers for actually making a game that's an adult game and doing something beyond the norm of the platformers that were out. And uh, that's really the reason I was excited about playing it in the first place to see, you know, what it was all about, what this cult following was. However, there were a few scenes, like I said before, and 12-year-old me would have thought everything funny and not thought anything else about. But one scene in particular was the um, the scene with the pitchfork and the paint cans and the suicide stuff. And, you know, they'd be like, oh, yeah, go kill yourself. Go kill yourself. You should just kill yourself. That stuff kind of really disturbs me. I was very, very put off about that. I think that's really beyond the line of potty humor and something that I, I feel like a lot of people have had to deal with in their lives, maybe not on a personal level, but on a personal enough level where they knew someone who had committed suicide or something like that. So it's a very serious thing. And I, you know, I just want to put out there, you know, if that's something that you're thinking about, reach out, talk to someone. I don't know, man. I was really, really deeply disturbed that something like that would be in a game. And I didn't find that funny at all. I was put off by it. But um, there are some other stuff, too. I mean, there were some uh, ribbing on homosexuals in the game at, at some points. And yeah. again, you know, maybe it's just me, you know, being older. But, you know, when you pick on a certain group of people, I, d I don't feel like that's comedy. I do think that this game crossed the line in certain spots. Did it kind of affect you in the same way or, you know, did you just kind of look beyond that? So I don't look beyond it, but I do want to say these kind of things become socially unacceptable in a way because of discussions like this, right? Mm -hmm. I'm really not one for what you would call political correctness and compelled speech or any of this stuff. And it's very controversial. I don't want to get too deep into it. However, you know, stuff like this, you can call it like you see it. Like, I do believe that it's a sign of the times that joking about suicide is it's a taboo now in a way that it wasn't back then. Now there's a lot of awareness of mental health issues. It's a good thing for that to be more of an issue that's in people's minds so does that mean it should be illegal to joke about suicide? No. But does that mean that we can call it out in an old piece of media that we're seeing it? That's what our right is to come <laughs> sure. on the airwaves and say that. So I just want to be clear about that. And um, especially with like the um, homosexual jokes, it's amazing to think in our lifetime how the acceptance of that has changed I've read so many articles and think pieces on, like, in film and TV. You can still see stuff like that besides just this game. Like, you'll watch a movie 
where they're using some really homophobic language. And it's like back then that was the norm and, and sure. things change. Again, it doesn't necessarily have to be because of politically correctness or the social justice warriors out there, whatever you want to say. I, I really do believe that like cultures evolve to the point where we can kind of look at these kind of things and just like kind of cringe at them and like, ooh, glad we don't like talk about our fellow human beings like that anymore. You know what I mean? Yeah. So doesn't mean there's not still problems in the world and man, we're getting deep on this. I'm <laughs> <laughs> no, but I knew we were going to talk about this. So I tried to kind of think about it ahead of time. And, uh, it's one of those things I think the best way to deal with these kind of things is to talk it out, you know, talk about why yeah. a joke about suicide or, or bullying someone into suicide. It's not good. It's not a thing that should be encouraged. And uh, we should talk about why it's wrong to do and why it's ill-advised to have it in a piece of art or media, unless it's kind of uh, illustrating something in a teachable way. This this is just a mean-spirited joke, you know? Yeah. Actually, I should bring up one of the other things that kind of bothered me, even though there's very cartoonish character models. There's all kinds of animals exploding. I mean, it's like animal cruelty all <laughs> over the place, you know? Again, I know they were kind of cutesy to begin with, and part of the satire of the game is that it's cutesy cartoon characters who are being mutilated in gory and very bloody ways. But the one part where you have to get the female cows to poop in the trough or whatever in the center, and then but then to move them out of the way, you have to smash through them, and they just explode... I was like, what the hell, man? Like, that's so <laughs> unnecessary. <laughs> yeah, I don't know, man. I I grew up on, like, Bugs Bunny cartoons and, like, Acme stuff. So it's just a further extension or a more grotesque, wily coyote and roadrunner type of scenario for me, you know? So that's it's fair. animated violence, so it doesn't bother me. You've mentioned before, like, playing, uh, what was the game, Wolfenstein, and attacking some of the dogs. That's so lifelike and not cartoony that that's bothersome. That would bother me, too. Right. You know? It's like when we were playing Until Dawn, and there was that dog following me around. I was like, please do not let this dog die. <laughs> right. I do not want this dog to die. But, you know, in this aspect, I think the first time you see that's with the uh, the mouse that you have to give the cheese, and he eats too much, and he explodes. Uh I don't know. It didn't really affect me much because it was like more animated violence. I'm kind of used to that stuff growing up on things like Ren and Stimpy, which I love so much. <laughs> That's fair. And, you know, like I said, it is very cartoony. I think it just at times it was just excessive. And I know that's the joke, yeah. like you're saying, but it was just like, come on. All right. I get it. Big chunks of meat flying everywhere. I get it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So other than the adult language and vulgarity and jumping off of Sunflower's boobs to collect money in this game, <laughs> yeah. this game's also littered with pop cultural movie references. And I had asked on the forums if anyone could figure out where that opening scene comes from. Did you figure out where that came no, from? No, I actually, I do not know what it is. So enlighten us. So it's that opening scene where it starts out on his face and it 
pulls out, which I should say is kind of a neat part of this story, is that you see the ending at the beginning of the story. And it's sort of like Conker's telling you the story and how he became king. Right. And uh, that's kind of a neat addition to the story. But when it pans out, you see that he's sitting there with a glass of milk and it comes like straight from his eyes. And I'm sure you're familiar with Kubrick's A Clockwork Orange, right? Yeah, you know what? As you were saying it, I was like, oh, Clockwork yeah, yeah. Orange. Very cool, man. Yeah, now it's I see It's the milk it. bar in A Clockwork Orange, yeah. So uh, I thought that was really neat, and I didn't notice it at first, and then after a few seconds, it sort of popped in my head. I was like, oh my gosh. You know, I, I didn't know that the, the game had movie references in it when we first started playing it, and I saw that, and I was like, oh man, that's so cool. Uh, but other than that, there's references to the Godfather. There's a war scene that is, uh, saving Private Ryan. There's Bram Stoker's Dracula. There's many, many movie references. The Matrix. Yep. Uh, there's one from Pulp Fiction where Barry says, I'm going to go powder my nose. Yeah. Oh, and aliens at the end. Yep. That's a good one. What did you think about this choice? You know, again, as a game that is a kind of a send up of these kind of tropes of the genre of game that it is, I thought it was kind of funny that that's how they decided to kind of break the mold by putting in these adult reference. And I don't mean adult in like, you know, adult content, but I mean like the kind of kid who's going to be playing a platformer game doesn't know what aliens is so they just kind of doubled down on saying you know this game is for an older audience by throwing in things like that the saving private ryan and Patton references you know like (laughs) yeah yeah. uh so i thought that was interesting i didn't i didn't have a problem with it i thought the alien one was the best when he gets into that loader kind of thing to fight it it was cool yeah it's really neat I actually really liked that part of the game. I thought it made the game a lot of fun. Like you said, for adults playing this game, the people that are supposed to be playing this game, it's just another uh, feather in the hat to the people that uh, developed it. One thing I did want to mention, and I didn't play any of it, I'm positive you didn't either, but this game has multiplayer. Yeah. Do you know anything about that? No, not besides what I saw in Exo Paradigm's video. I definitely didn't try it or anything, but uh, yeah, it's there. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, my kids weren't going to play multiplayer with me in this game, and of course my wife wasn't, so yeah, it's there, and you know, very interesting that they included some sort of multiplayer. From what I understand, there's some of the uh, lava racing, which we all love so much, <laughs> and you can compete against each other, and you can choose different characters from the game, I think. I don't know if that's just available in the latter versions of the game, like Live and Reloaded or Rare Replay, or if it's also available in the N64 version of the game. I wasn't very clear on that. Throw some uh, comments in the thread and let us know if you've tried the multiplayer and what you thought about that. All right, so let's move on and talk a little bit about the graphics of the game. Again, it's your standard fare of N64 polygonal graphics with some cutscenes. So what'd you think? Well, like we were saying, I think we established that we're both fans more of the jagged, sharp polygons of the PlayStation 1 than we are of the muddy, foggy, soft, blurry textures and polygons of the N64. But having said that, I mean, the character designs are well done and everything is very like serviceable for an N64 game. Nothing was assaulting my eyes with ugliness, you know, even <laughs> for a game that 
that yeah. is ugly in theme you know what i mean like you said the famous like poo monster scene still looks really cool even on the the original hardware so mm-hmm. in a lot of ways i think they did a, a really good job with the technology at the time so yeah what they had to deal with i think they did a good job and you know when you kind of progress into that area you got to just kind of go with what's available to you I'm not a big fan of the N64 graphics, but I, I thought it looked pretty good in, in most spots. Every once in a while, you'd see something that didn't look so hot. But overall, I think they did a you know a really, really good job with this game. I did want to point out, though, in looking at some of the videos that we watched, just the difference in the Conker's Live and Reloaded edition just moving onto the Xbox. Yeah, Man, there's some great textures in that. The footage I've seen in that game, look, it looks amazing, and I don't own a copy of that game, but if I did, I would have definitely played that and probably gotten further in the game playing that one, because it seems that there are so many ways that they improved it, like just having like improved controls and uh, camera controls, but like yeah. you were saying, the graphics on that look amazing. Yeah, really cool that they, you know, even considered doing a remake and, you know, brushing stuff up for uh, fans. I think if I ever come across that game cheap, I'll probably uh, pick up a copy just to try it out. Yeah. So you mentioned the cutscenes, and uh, they are just like in-engine, and they're all fully voiced, which is kind of cool for an N64 game. But I got to say, I found out from that video that the voice acting was mostly done by the head writer. And yeah. I didn't know that as I played and watched through the game. But I got to say the voice acting, and I want to get your take on this. It had this really creepy, breathy, whispery kind of delivery most of the time that was very off-putting to me. <laughs> and I don't know if it had the same impression on you. But just the style of the way this gentleman uh, delivered his lines, it was almost like he was like trying to seduce someone in a really creepy way. Like no matter <laughs> what character he was playing, you know, like I don't know if I'm crazy for feeling that way. Like, what did you think? Uh, Yeah, I mean, it was different. I never really thought about it like that. But now I'm never going to be able to play this game again <laughs> without thinking about that. So thanks. For me, what I noticed more was the odd mixture of dialects, Yeah, you know, in the voice acting, like especially with Conker. I mean, like, is he British? <laughs> what dialect are we going with here? I, I couldn't tell. So it seemed like sort of a mismatch. And, and maybe that was on purpose. Who knows? But I didn't really feel like it was like breathy or <laughs> anything like that. So it's interesting. <laughs> Oh, well, it's just me, I guess. But, well, listeners, please tell me what you think. Go and thread. I can't be alone in this. Me, 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 me. I am the great mighty bull, and I am going to throw my... At you, a huge supply of cheese comes from my chocolate starfish. How about some scat, you little? Yeah. <laughs> 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 
Some more caviar. All right, so we can move on to the music now and the sounds in the game. Uh, I just flipped on my phone because I wanted to see who did the music because I admit to write this down. But it looks like Robin Beanland was the person who did the music for Conker's Bad Fur Day. And... I just got onto the site. It looks like I am 8-bit, the same site that are releasing the uh, Mega Man license reproductions we were talking about. And there's actually a soundtrack for Conker's Bad Fur Day that's available. It looks like on uh, maybe on vinyl. That's pretty interesting. I'm curious to what you think about the music in this game. Well, first of all, are you going to pick up that vinyl or what? <sighs> I think I might have to, man. I really do. <laughs> cool. Well, it sounds like you like the music. I also liked it a lot. Once again, it plays into the kind of having a foot in both worlds of the like classically cartoony, fun, you know, like xylophone and horns kind of cartoon stuff. And then when it needs to be, it's dramatic and cinematic, you know, like in a movie. So... Totally fitting. Very well done on the music. And plus, like I mentioned, there's a few licensed songs in the game, like the OJ's uh, Love of Money. So pretty interesting stuff there, too. I don't know if you've played Cuphead yet, but it reminds me a little of the music in that game. That sort of like old timey, like cartoon ragtime feel right, in spots. Right. And uh, I think that's what the guy was going for that did the album. Yeah, I really, really liked the music in this game. It was cool, and it was always fitting for whatever stage you were in, like the Outworld, the Lava Stage, and I especially liked the music in the club. I really loved the pumping, like vibing, like house music. Yeah. I thought they did such a great job with the music. Definitely one of the highlights for me. The sounds in the game I thought were fantastic as well. If you were in a world made out of poop, when you would step, it would just make potty sounds, you know, <laughs> farting and stuff. I, I, you know, I got to say, man, I would chuckle. I would get a little smile on my face when that would happen, you know. Yeah. The kid in me would just kind of come out. All that stuff is very funny to us, so I thought that was very fitting for this game. Well, I want to talk about the ending as we roll into our final thoughts here, because... You know, I got to be honest, I don't love bailing out on a game that we're doing for the podcast. I actually am loath to have to do that. But I just felt, you know, there was a certain point where the repetitive nature of the collecting, you know, get me one of these things and then you do it. And it's like, oh, I just need one more. And then you do it. And it's like, all right, I just need one more. And it's like, what am I doing? You know, so Mm-hmm. That's what kind of put me off of the game amongst other things and why I bailed on it, which I'm not thrilled about. So I didn't really have a great frame of mind to just watch the game because, of course, it's much more fun to play a game than watch it. But the ending of this game, I loved. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because I love an unhappy ending. Yeah, I knew that about you. I was going to say that. I'm glad you brought that up. I'm like, I bet Sean loved this shit because it's unhappy. Yes, I'm a big fan of the committed unhappy ending where there's no, no, it was all just a dream. Or no, everybody's happy ever after. This is a real bummer of an ending where he becomes 
king, but he loses everything on the way there. And he has to reflect on that. And it's really a bummer in a good way. And that made me kind of, in retrospect, just kind of look back on getting there. And it made me appreciate the whole thing more. Rather than this whole game just leaving a bitter taste in my mouth, they had a slam dunk with the ending as far as I'm concerned. So what did you think about that? I'm going to agree and disagree with you. I like the ending being sad. It gave the game like a moral. You know, like you can have everything in the world. You can have all this money and everything. But what do you have to sacrifice to get that? Are you going to be happy after you have to sacrifice those things? I really like that a lot. And I'm total agreement with you. What I did not like about the game is after the final boss fight, there's this breaking of the fourth wall that I don't like at all. And where they just kind of stop the game and then he turns around to the writer says, hey, man, what happened here? The game crashed. (laughs) It kind of felt like they didn't know how to end it. Though I know they did. It's definitely on purpose, right? I mean, because they could have just ended it right there. You could have thrown that alien through that hatch and just progressed on. But it's um, it's this deus ex machina. Yeah, I was just going to say that. Yeah. A flagrant example yeah. of a deus ex machina, for sure. God in the machine. And, yeah. um, you know, this is something that happens a lot of time, you know, like in plays and things like that. Some odd event kind of happens out of nowhere and everybody's like happy at the end. But in this case, you know, everything is not all right with the world at the end. So I did really appreciate that. But I did think that sort of breaking of the fourth wall, talking to the developers of the game was just really kind of odd and weird and out of place for an ending. Yeah, I got to throw in something I forgot to say, and I agree with you. I'd I'd kind of forgotten about the Deus Ex Machina. Somehow, that was a totally conscious choice on the part of the writers to do that. Mm -hmm. Like you said, they could have just had him beat the final boss and end the game. But also, I wanted to say, like, one of the reasons the sad bummer ending works so well is that Conquer, especially, but none of the characters in this game are really likable or least of all redeemable. Yeah. You know, Conquer, he's a jerk to everybody and does like <laughs> bad stuff to everybody. So it's not that he's getting his just desserts, but I mean, they really put the character in his place in a way that he has to acknowledge where he's at by the end of the game. And mm-hmm. you don't see that in a lot of things, you know, movies, games, what have you. So. I just wanted to throw that out there. I kind of forgot to say that, that Conker's not, you can call him an anti-hero, but he's not even that. Like, <laughs> you, that's like kind of a stretch, you know? Yeah. So all his motivations are very selfish, which makes the ending even more powerful. Very true. Well, before we get into our final thoughts, I want to get in the final thoughts of some of our participants and read those, if I may. Yeah. Pam, who played the game with us, who put her controller down, she did not finish this game. She said, since Live and Reloaded was just added to Xbox One backwards compatibility, I decided to give that version a go. It looks and plays so much better than the Rare Replay version. No inversion of the X-axis, no lag. That said, I still don't really like it. There are so many cutscenes, and the voice acting is kind of obnoxious. Also, it seems like Conker's accent changes every time he talks, and I think that's probably where I got that from. She says, sometimes he sounds British, sometimes American, sometimes he's got a mouthful of marbles. (laughs) (laughs) 
I at least got past the intro level with this version of the game, but it's still not really for me. And then Link41, this was his first playthrough with us, but longtime member of RF Generation said, I just finished this last night. It has aged okay-ish, I guess. Not really my fave N64 game, but it was just okay. I've heard multiplayer was good back in the day, but I'm not exposing my kids to this anytime soon. So I'll just have to wait and see one day. And then finally, participant Beauchamp, I just don't get it with the game. Conquer came out after Banjo 1 and 2, and yet the experience in almost every way is borderline horrible by comparison. I feel every N64 adventure is poor compared to Super Mario 64, which should be the opposite circumstance, but that is another discussion for another forum topic. I know they rushed at the end of its production, but the small things that probably would have been tuned with some more testing add up and create significant frustration. When I started the game, I fell three or four times getting used to the lag on the jumping when obtaining the frying pan and the inverted x-axis mentioned above. Also took some getting used to. I never played Conquer on the N64, but the controls have not been helped by having a second joystick like it did for Jet Force Gemini on the Rare Replay compilation. The humor is definitely up my alley though, and while I understand the adults only rating, I don't feel it is that bad. A few cuss words and some adult humor are really all we are looking at since graphically the visual situations leave a lot to your own understanding and imagination. That is some really good commentary from Beauchamp. And that is an insight into this game that I'm so glad we were able to put on the record because I've never played Banjo-Kazooie, Banjo-Tooie. I've never played Mario 64. Yeah. The platformers from this era are not really my bread and butter. Like, I don't know a lot about them. So I really got to shout out Beauchamp for making that comment and, um, you know, kind of setting the record straight on that. Because knowing what I do know about those games, he makes a really good point. So appreciate that. Yeah, we had some good discussion this month on this game and really appreciate everyone joining in and for the comments. This is basically what we get with our playthroughs on our forums on a monthly basis so yeah if you haven't checked us out yet you should jump in on this and uh enjoy playing some games with us each month all right man let's get to our final thoughts all right me first sure um yeah so this was a this was a rough one i it's hard for me to say whether or not i would recommend this game because it's very like kind of alien to me just from not being a fan of the 64. And like I just said, not being familiar with the platforming games of that era, let alone of the N64. And there's this concept that I think about a lot when playing retro games of like going back, quote unquote, like, can you go back to Conquer's Bad Fur Day? Can you go back to this game or that game? Because sometimes you can't or you shouldn't, or it's not worth it, you know? And I think with Conquer, I would say it's not. I mean, it's more of a novelty for the fact that it's a really raunchy game on a Nintendo system at the time. I mean, I have enough of a hard time going back to like PlayStation 2 games. Like I played the original Ratchet and Clank a few years ago, and it's a great game with very competent controls and platforming, but it's very different from the platformers that are out now, you know, so... There's all different eras of these kind of games, and you have to really take that into account. 
unless you're Mario 64, from what I understand, it's, it's really hard to quote unquote, go back to some of these games. It was definitely a disappointment from my perspective. And, uh, I wish I had more to say about it and it's hard to recommend from the fact that I couldn't even finish it. Yeah. All right. Yeah. From, uh, my perspective, I kind of knew what I was getting into in playing this game. I was playing on a system that I didn't care for, still don't care for, and I was playing a platformer. So I knew that those things are going to be exceedingly difficult for me. With that said, I felt like the difficulty in this game was very fair. I was still able to beat this game in a month, and I'm not a top-of-the-line gamer. I'm a pretty good gamer. I would say, you know, I finish most of the games that I start... Uh, unless they're, you know, like some, uh, you know, super tough retro games. But, um, you know, I, I just kind of put my nose down and just kind of dug in and decided, you know, I'm going to finish this game. I'm going to work hard to finish this game. There are some really bad parts of this game. Some of the shooting areas, the gun mechanisms and things like that are very, very difficult to aim. As I mentioned before, the platforming can be difficult. But overall, I did enjoy this game and glad that I had to play through it. You mentioned something about can you go back when you're playing a game? You know, you, you can't like recreate that time. And when you've played more modern games and you've played with more modern controls, it is really hard to sort of go back and play a game like this where the controls are a lot worse. But if you had grown up at that time, and played it, you would probably thought the controls were pretty good and probably fairly revolutionary. I think you can go back, but I think you have to keep in mind as far as what you're getting into and understand the era of these type of games and what the controls were like and that they weren't the best and still get some enjoyment out of these games. As far as like if this is one that you should add to your collection, I mean, I think it is like a cult class. I think it's catchy. It's fun. It has some like really neat adult humor in it. And it has enough variation to make it an interesting game. It has some great music that's enjoyable. So I think it checks a lot of boxes in the positive category. But I think it does have a lot of problems. And so if you're thinking about picking it up, you need to kind of recognize this and kind of understand what you're getting into if you didn't play it back in the day and if it wasn't something you enjoyed back then. So, yeah, I know you sold your cart and I wanted to kind of talk about that as far as like what the status of our carts were, you know, because I thought, well, maybe you hadn't sold it yet, but you did. You got rid of it inside your collection. Yep. And I've been like pondering. What am I going to do? Am I going to sell this card or am I going to hold on to it? And, you know, the collector side of me says, oh, man, you got to hold on to it. You know, this is <laughs> this is sort of, you know, a revolutionary game. It's neat. It's not a game that I'm ever going to just sit down with my kids and play. And when I'm dead and gone, I'm probably going to cackle about like them, like digging this out of my collection at some point, maybe popping it <laughs> in, you know, like what in the hell was our dad thinking when they find that in the uh, Atari porno games that my wife bought me for our anniversary. <laughs> but yeah, I think I'm going to keep it actually. I did really enjoy my time with this game. And to be honest, I hated it at first and I was not having fun with it and I was dreading it. And I was like, this is one, I'm not going to be able to say this year that I completed all the games like I did last year. There's no way I'm going to make it through this game. But you know what? I did. And I, I just kept plugging away. And 
just like Enslaved. I had so many problems with that game, you know, being a more modern game. It was such a good feeling to beat it, and I had that same joy in beating this game. And maybe even more because it, you know, it's an older, you know, more clunky game. So, uh, so yeah, I'm going to keep it in my collection, man. Awesome. All right, man. Well, we're at the end of the podcast, so tell us about what we're going to be playing in May. This is a personal favorite of yours, and of course, one we're going to be talking about in episode 50. Awesome. So yeah, I am so excited for our game for May because it's one of my favorite games of all time, and I am honored to have this game become the topic of our 50th episode next month. So the game is Rhapsody, a musical adventure, a game developed by Nippon Ichi, released on the PlayStation in 1998 in Japan and 2000 in North America, and then remade on the Nintendo DS in 2008. So it's a cute RPG, and we played a cute RPG way back when called Magical Star Sign. This is kind of in the same vein, and this is the first one of these kinds of games that I ever played, and it has a very special place in my heart. It's actually a musical. You go through the game, and at certain points, the characters will break out into these Disney-style musical numbers with full singing, and it's so much fun. It's so heartwarming. It's one of my favorite games of all time. And I hope everybody gets on the forum and joins us and loves it as much as I do. And we're going to kind of go rogue here and we're going (laughs) to announce our June game. Our June game is Beyond Two Souls. And that game is currently in the month of May, one of the PlayStation Plus titles for the PlayStation 4. So we want to make sure that everybody who has PlayStation Plus makes sure to download that game for June. And we wanted to make sure to play this game because we've played all the other Quantic Dream games that have been released to date in preparation for Detroit Become Human, which is coming out later this year, hopefully. hopefully. And, we <laughs> in, <laughs> and we intend to have that as a playthrough as soon as we can. So yeah, you're getting two announcements here, kind of unofficially, but we're excited about the next two months. I'd appreciate your input. Sweat, baby, sweat, baby, sex is a Texas drought, me and you do the kind of stuff that So put your hands down my pants And I'll bet you'll feel nuts Yes, I'm Cisco, yes, I'm Ebert And you're getting two thumbs up You've had enough of two-hand touch You want it rough, you're out of bounds I want you smothered, want you covered Like my Waffle House hash browns Coming quicker than FedEx, never reaching apex Just like Google Cold Stock, you are inclined to make me rise an hour early Just like daylight savings time You and me, baby, Nothing but mammals, so let's do it like they do on the Discovery Channel. Do it again now. You and me, baby, ain't nothing but mammals, so let's do it like they do on the Discovery Channel. Get the point now. And with 
with that, we will wrap up the show. Thanks for listening, and thank you for participating in the playthrough. In March, we will let a song grow in our hearts as we check out one of my favorite games of all time, Rhapsody, a musical adventure for the Sony PlayStation. You won't want to miss this one, as our next episode will be a major milestone. We will discuss Rhapsody on our 50th episode. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next month on the Playcast.